You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. Um, my name's Al. I'm one of the leaders here. It's great to have you here today. I'll add my welcome to that of Pete and Hannah earlier on. Um, I, I really hope that you've enjoyed being with us this morning. Um, th- this is the final session this morning, I promise. I promise. This is the final week that we're going to be doing. Uh, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 17 together. Um, I, I did sort of say last week, I wasn't sure if, the, if that was going to be the last one. Uh, well, I decided during the week, no, 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 I, I, I'm going to finish it off um, we'll wrap it up today, uh, and, and then it's done and dusted. If you feel like it's gone on for a long time, spare a thought for the, the poor souls who are here from back 15-odd years ago when uh, Luke's gospel was preached through over a space of about five years. I mean, you, you remember, don't you? Like, no joke. When, when, you, when someone stood up and said, turn to the gospel of Luke, there was an audible groan in the congregation. <laughs> So if you think that just a few, just two or three months on 1 Samuel 17 is bad, you know, you, you're very, very fortunate indeed. So uh, anyways, we're going we're gonna to read the last section of 1 Samuel 17, um, and then I'll pray and we will launch into it together. Okay, oh, hang on. I need me remote control. Too busy yakking. Here we go. So, when Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this young man? Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. The king said, inquire whose son the stripling is. On David's return from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite, which is something you have to practice saying, by the way, Bethlehemite. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of Scripture. We thank you that this word is breathed out by and breathed into and you breathe out from and make yourself known to us. Uh, And we ask as your people this morning, as those who have confessed Jesus as Lord, would you come and speak to us, allow us to hear the voice of God in amongst all the other words and things today. We pray that you would speak and that we would hear, and that just as you spoke, Jesus, and things changed and hearts changed and blind eyes opened and lame legs were healed Lord, we want to ask that your living word would encounter us and change us. I pray for any this morning who don't know you, who are exploring, who are looking and wondering whether there's there's anything in this. Is this just a human construct or is God really alive and with these people? Holy Spirit, we ask that you would make yourself known, that you would bring revelation and insight into who you are through the scriptures today. We ask that you would glorify yourself through your word, through the preaching of it. Amen. All right, so one of the most bizarre bits about 1 Samuel 17 is, and there are some bizarre bits in 1 Samuel 17, but one of the most bizarre bits is how it ends. 
this last paragraph or so is a bit odd because we have to try and account for the fact that Saul doesn't seem to recognize David. Saul sees David going out to fight, and he tells to Abner, his commander, whose son is this young man? Did you like the word stripling, by the way? That's the NRSV translation. Whose son is the stripling? Um, it's not a word that we use in common English. But he's asking, well, who is this? And it's a little bit bizarre. Because if you remember, it was only a few verses previous that David and Saul are having a fairly in-depth conversation about whether David should be going out to fight Goliath. And then Saul tries to hang his armor and give his weapons to, Goliath, to David to go and face Goliath. And back in 1 Samuel 16, David is basically hired by Saul to go and play acoustic ballads to soothe Saul's troubled spiritual life. So how on earth is it that now, in 1 Samuel 17, right at the end, when David is brought before Saul, dragging the head of Goliath with him, Saul has to say, whose son is this young man? It's a little bit bizarre, isn't it? Before we get into trying to unpack what is happening here, and it is actually an important question, and the answer to the question is probably a, a bit of a key for understanding 1 Samuel 17 and the story of David and Goliath and everything as well. But before we get into thinking about that, I want to try and steer you away from a potential mistake in how you might think about this kind of stuff, how you might address these kinds of questions. When a, a problem seems to pop up in the text, how do you avoid making a mistake? Uh, the mistake you could easily make is to assume that you are wiser and less naive, less credulous, that you are more insightful and cleverer than the ancient authors and readers of this text. The people who wrote, heard, and received this story as scripture. It would be a mistake to think that you're smarter than them. On one level, it's a mistake because they obviously would have noticed just the same things that you noticed. How come Saul didn't recognize David? It's not that difficult of a conundrum that only we now, in the early 21st century, are going, aha, how did he know? It's not that much of a mystery, is it? It's not like it's kind of we've suddenly uncovered it. It's in plain sight. So the authors and the first readers would have known just as well that there's a bit of an issue here. The problem for us is this. We might be inclined to think that where a biblical text is unusual, clunky, illogical, that it might therefore be suspicious. And we might be thinking, hmm, hang on a minute. You see, we, we tend to think suspiciously as Western moderns, and I do beg your pardon if you wouldn't count yourself as a, as a, a Westerner, but in the Western world, we're very suspicious, and particularly when it comes to sacred texts. We get suspicious when things don't seem to map out in a particular way that we are used to or that we might expect in the way that we think and process things intellectually. The thing is, guys, the authors and hearers, the readers, the compilers of these stories 
probably actually valued things like this, conundrums and apparent inconsistencies and things that are illogical in ways that we can't get our heads around. Why might they value those kinds of things? Well, because there is more than one way of telling a story about somebody. And you know that very well yourself. The story that you tell about yourself with your nearest and dearest is different to the story you tell about yourself on Facebook or other social media platforms. The story you tell amongst your work colleagues is different to the story that you tell amongst your longest standing friend. There are different aspects of story that make up who you are. And within the biblical text, there are different portrayals of people and instances and circumstances and events that for the hearers and readers and receivers of these texts were important because they show that life is complex. And life with God is flipping complex. And people's lives before God are a mystery, and that is something to be prized, not something to be somehow airbrushed out. We like our modern stories neat, tidy, obvious, and we assume somehow that God should be neat, tidy, and obvious. But why? We struggle with the most basic things. God's revelation of God's self is sometimes more complicated than we want it to be. But in the wrestling with it, we find that God does something in us. And that's perhaps why some of us don't like reading the Bible. Oh, it's a bit complex. I have to wrestle with something. I thought that I would just read and gain perfect, clear insight into everything. And we find instead that God is inviting us into this process of having to think. <laughs> oh, no. Who knew being a Christian required thinking? And, and engaging deeply and thinking about the ambiguities and the mystery of life. And so this story, with its weird ending, and with the question, how could Saul not recognize David, it just goes to show that it's not ideological. It's not airbrushed. The problems aren't smoothed out. They are left hanging for us to wrestle with. And it's all the more tangible and all the more real for being that way. So that's the pre-sermon sermon. Let's now get into the sermon sermon. How might we then interpret these few verses at the end of 1 Samuel 17? So I want to give you three broad brushstroke modes of thinking about this, or approaches to these unusual verses. The first one is what we might call a historical perspective. And I need to just tell you what I mean by that so that you don't go, but isn't it just a history book anyway? No, no. What I, what I mean is this. When you read a story like this and you get to the end and it's a little bit unusual and there seems to be an inconsistency, some biblical scholars go, ha, that's interesting. So there must be something going on behind the scenes that means that this is what we've got in the Bible. And so a lot of scholars go down this route of thinking, what actually happened? What really happened? What actually went on? What's the thing behind the thing? And it's called a historical critical approach. It's saying, well, we've got this text in front of us, but there's this whole world beneath it somewhere or behind it that, that we can try and dive into 
and create a theory that will explain why it's a little bit unusual. And so when it comes to 1 Samuel 17, some scholars have got this idea that what has happened is 1 Samuel 16 and 17 have been spliced into the overall story of 1 Samuel, right? So you've got the books of Samuel, and these stories about Saul and David and Goliath have been sort of inserted in at some point in the text production And now they fit within this big story of 1 Samuel. Now, it's really interesting. And the kind of arguments are, they sort of range from being a little bit daft to being reasonably compelling. But the point is, we're not really interested in what actually happened in the world behind the text. What we're interested in as Christian readers and interpreters is what the text says now in its current final form. Because we haven't got a lot of markers within the story saying, oh, this bit was chopped in at this point, and that bit was added in then. It doesn't do that. We just have this story. And the historical bit can be interesting, but it is just a theory. It doesn't actually help us to interpret this story as Christian scripture, even though it might give a reason why Saul doesn't seem to recognize David. The historical scholars would say, perhaps... In reality, Saul had never met David. That's what they would suggest. I don't believe that, by the way. That's just to put my take on it out there, okay? So that's one perspective, historical. And if you buy a Bible commentary ever, you will find things like this in how they kind of approach and talk about the biblical text. Anyway, there's another perspective, a literary perspective. Of course, the Bible is literature. It's words on paper, it's text, it's written down, it's stuff that we read. And so over the last 50, 60, 70 years or so, a big move in biblical scholarship has been to think about the Bible as literature and to try and understand it as literature and to apply the same kind of methods that you would to, I don't know, to studying classic literature when it comes to studying the Bible. I think it is enormously helpful, even though it's not the only helpful thing or even the most helpful thing when we're reading the Bible. So when literary scholars come to 1 Samuel 17, they very appropriately try and look at the whole sweep of Saul's story, and they look at David and Saul and the interactions and what's going on, and they they study the, the kind of clues within the words and the arrangement of words and things themselves. They do the same kind of stuff that, that you do in a sermon. You try and unpack the text. You unpack the story. You look at the clues and the hints and the repetitions and things like this. And what they suggest is that perhaps Saul doesn't recognize David because Saul is falling apart at the seams. They think that Saul is actually losing the plot, that he is having some kind of breakdown, and he doesn't recognize David, and that's a symptom of what we might call today a a very serious mental health issue. And so they would track back, and they would look at the the fact that God rejected Saul, and then they would see the, the moment when the evil spirit from God afflicts Saul, And then they would see that he's frightened when Goliath comes up and challenges the Israelite armies. And then they would say, ah, and he doesn't even recognize David. See, this is evidence of a man who is just becoming increasingly unhinged. Now, the older I get, 
I, I tend to forget things too. Um, maybe I'm becoming unhinged. Um, you could ask Susanna about that. She'd probably say, definitely. Um, but it's, a, it's an, interesting, an interesting way of looking at this, isn't it? Maybe, maybe the non-recognition is a sign that Saul is losing the plot. If we were to go on through the story of 1 Samuel and look at Saul a little bit more closely, we would see that that goes even further. Saul starts to rage and try to kill David, chasing him wildly. I mean, it's like wacky races through the Judean wilderness trying to spear David and put him to death. And hence, a literary perspective on what is happening tries to take Saul over the space of a whole sweep of scripture and pay attention to the clues and try and solve the problem, how come Saul didn't recognize David, through looking at the literature, right? Does that make sense? Reasonably clear? You don't have to like it, but can you just indicate that you kind of get it? Thanks. All right, that's helpful. Cheers. Now, I think that's a good way of looking at the text, but it's a little bit extreme, isn't it? It's quite an extreme interpretive move to say that Saul is experiencing some kind of serious, fast-onset amnesia only maybe 15, 20 verses after he's had a conversation with David. So although it tries to solve the problem by saying, ow, this is probably what's happening, it's another probably, another possibly, another maybe. And there are potentially better ways of approaching this. And here's one a theological perspective, and I even put it in blue to prove that this is the one that I think you should all pay the most attention to. A theological perspective. I want us to begin exploring a theological perspective on this weird ending to 1 Samuel by looking at the last verse again. Saul says to David, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite, in bold text. It's possible that what looks like a failure to recognize David is actually a genuine concern and question about where David's loyalties lie. You see, Saul doesn't say, who are you? He says, whose son are you? And it might well be that Saul is trying to secure David's loyalty and get him to swear allegiance, perhaps, to him as king and his regime. Further on down the road in 1 Samuel, as Saul is chasing David through the wilderness, Saul wanders into a cave to have a wee. And while he's in there, David's in there with all his, his band of men that are on the run. And it's like this kind of, <laughs> this moment. And David goes up and snips a corner of Saul's robe off. And then when Saul's done his business, he kind of wanders out of the cave. And David comes out and says, my Lord, waving the piece of robe, I could have killed you. But I just cut the corner of your robe off, which is obviously you know, close to the equivalent. And, uh, and Saul turns around and says, is this your voice? My son, David. Ooh. It's a highly emotionally charged moment. But when Saul asks David here, whose son are you? I think, very possibly, 
he's trying to tease out of David, are you with me? Are you for me? Are you on my side? Or are you going to be a bit of a threat to me? David, though, is circumspect. He's very measured in his reply. He doesn't wish to align himself with Saul too closely, or perhaps even at all. And so he says, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Now, here's the thing. And this is where the theological bit really comes in. And, and this, this is where I hope to show you what's, what's happening in a, in a key way. This is not the first time that we've heard the phrase Jesse the Bethlehemite in the story of David's election and rise to being king and fighting Goliath and now standing before Saul. In actual fact, in 1 Samuel 16 and 17, Jesse the Bethlehemite shows up three times in three key different places. And I'd like to show you where they are. Here's the first one. 1 Samuel 16.1, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. And then in verse 18, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, and the Lord is with him. And then finally, verse 58, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Now, perhaps you're sitting here today and you're thinking, well, that's just sheer circumstantial. That's just the way it goes. That's just, why is that anything at all? All you're pointing out is that it says the same thing a few times. But listen, repetition in the Bible is never, ever, ever just an accident. It's far, far, far too clever and articulate just to be a kind of a, a quirk of writing something. It's deliberate. And these three references to Jesse the Bethlehemite are deliberate, and they all highlight something very, very important. So take the first one, 1 Samuel 16.1. This phrase is used in 1 Samuel 16.1, and it's found on the Lord's lips. It's God speaking. He says to Samuel, go to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided, or the verb can mean seen, for myself a king from among his sons. God has provided an as yet anonymous son of Jesse to be king for him. And so from the very beginning of 1 Samuel 16, the phrase Jesse the Bethlehemite takes on a theological significance because this is something that God has commanded. It's something that God is doing. It's something that has God's sovereign fingerprints all over it. It's God intervening in the history of his people. And his intervention in this instance takes the form of seeing and choosing the man after his own heart. Jesse the Bethlehemites. It's from the very beginning rich and heavy with theological significance. The second time there, 1 Samuel 16, 18. This time when we hear the phrase, it's connected to Saul's affliction with an evil spirit and his request that his servants find him a good musician to come and minister to him. One of the servants of Saul says of David, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a warrior, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And then finally, and the Lord is with him. Now, when you get a list like that in the Bible, the last item is normally always the one that has the emphasis, right? So here, 
But the last phrase is this son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, the Lord is with him. We know who it is because we've heard God speak to Samuel about a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, and we know the weightiness of him, of this being a God thing, a theological moment where Jesse the Bethlehemite suddenly takes on this weightiness in the purposes of God. And now here, as the outgoing king, rejected by God, is struggling and afflicted, asking for a musician to come, oh, we've seen, God's seen him as well, hasn't he? We've seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehem. The Lord is with him. And there's this irony, because at the end of the anointing scene, when, the, when Jesse, oh, not Jesse, Samuel pours the, oil, the horn of oil over David and anoints him king, it says the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that time. Well, the spirit of the Lord leaves Saul. And so here we've got the son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, chosen by God, who the Lord is with, in the very presence of the one who the Lord has left. And so Jesse the Bethlehemite, this phrase, the son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, not only is he chosen by God, but now he's being seen and recognized the Lord's with him. The theological weightiness of it all is moving on and through the text and gathering weight as it goes. And now David is brought into this place of serving Saul And it's being recognized. The Lord is with him. And as readers and hearers, we're supposed to go, ah, yeah, okay. Son of Jesse, the Lord is with him. Yes, okay, I see. And then finally, we get David's words at the end of the whole chapter. I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. At the end of this whole incident, David owns his own identity. Not an identity of his own making, not his own version of him, but in the story of David, in this telling of David's rise, the words he uses are words that reflect the theological reality that God chose him, that the Lord is with him. And as he stands before Saul, with the bleeding head of Goliath in his hand. His own confession of who he is, as a man whom we know that God has chosen, we know God is with him. And with the head of Goliath in his hand, he can say too, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. He's vindicated in his identity. So he's got the flipping skull of the giant in his hand. It serves to confirm what we have seen and heard from the start. This is God's anointed. This is the man after God's own heart. This is the true king of Israel. Jesse the Bethlehemite, the son of Jesse the Bethlehemite. God's actions, God's choice, God's man, God's vindication of him and his own owning, identification with that story about who he is. Now, you might think, I might have heard something like this before. And if you've read the New Testament, then yes, you have. And I'll help you to understand where you might have heard that before, because it's really important. 
It's not Mark's gospel, just to let you know, David. It comes in John's gospel. We find Jesus involved in a dispute with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees ask Jesus a question, who are you? It's interesting, isn't it? We've just heard Saul ask David, who are you? Whose son are you? (laughs) Jesus has just asked, who are you? Jesus answers this. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will realize that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but I speak these things as the Father has instructed me. Now, if you know anything about John's gospel, you know that it is both low-hanging fruit and ridiculous depths all in the same few verses. St. Augustine, the 4th century bishop and preacher and theologian, spoke about John's gospel and said it's shallow enough for an infant to paddle in and deep enough for an elephant to swim. It's got everything, low-hanging fruit and incredible depths about it. And so what you might not realize here or recognize immediately when we read this in English is that what Jesus says is very, very revealing of who he thinks his true, what he thinks his true identity is. Jesus says, I am he. And it sounds a strange thing. We don't say, well, I am he, really, in English. But in Greek, the phrase, I am he, is ego eimi. Literally, it translates as I I am. That's what it means. I, I am. Now, why would that be so massively significant to say I, I am? Well, it's because I, I am, or ego eimi, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew words that God himself speaks to Moses at the burning bush. Moses is wandering around in the wilderness, following the sheep around. He sees a bush burning but not consumed. That's interesting, he thinks. I'll go and have a look. As he approaches, God speaks to him, get your shoes off. Take those sweaty crocs off your feet. They're rubbish anyway, and they stink. And this is holy ground. Just That's my opinion, by the way, not anyone's. Um, other shoes are available. Uh, and, and God says, I'm going to send you. I've heard the cry of my people in Egypt. I'm going to send you to deliver them. And Moses argues, and part of the argument is, well, if, they, if I go and say, who am I going to say you are? And God reveals himself as I am. I am that I am, or I will be who I will be. It's not easy to translate, but the Greek appropriation of that is ego eimi. I am, or I, I am, or I am he. So in answer to the question, when Jesus is asked by the Pharisees, who are you? He answers, saying, I am the divine identity. I am God. I am the embodiment of the God of Israel. But it's more than that. Because he says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, and he's talking about the cross, by the way, when I am crucified, then you will realize, ego eimi. Jesus is saying that the full unveiling of the divine identity that he carries and embodies will be seen at the cross In his lifting up from the earth is the place where the true, full identity of his sharing in the identity of the one God of Israel, that's where you will see it. That's where it will be the most closely recognized and understood. Then you will know the ego eimi, I, I am. 
Jesus, like David, owns his own identity, speaks it out. Not only owns it with words, but performs it. Jesus goes to the cross. He's faithful to the Father in going to the cross. He's faithful as the embodiment of God, to be God, particularly in going to the cross. In the final book of the Christian Bible, the book of Revelation, we find Jesus resurrected from the dead and ascended and glorified in a different way, speaking to John, the beloved disciple. And John is freaked out and overwhelmed by the vision of Jesus. But Jesus says to him, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and see, I am alive forever and ever. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Now, flipping heck, worship leaders, can you stop, please, telegraphing my sermon every single blooming week? I was standing there today and I was like, I don't know this song. And then all of a sudden we're singing about Jesus having the keys of death and Hades. I was like, how did you get hold of my notes? Paul, did you hack my computer? I know you're a little bit of an IT whiz and there are others like you in the church. I'm suspicious. Security breach. Where's the trustees? Do something with this man. Uh, I have the keys of death and Hades. Look, this is a beautiful moment in the Bible. I don't want to spend a long, long time with it, but just think about this with me. The same David who was with the sheep, rejected by his family, not even considered when the prophet came, that same David doing the menial, weak, dirty job of shepherding is the man after God's heart, who in the end of the story is vindicated as God's chosen. The same Jesus, who was crucified in weakness, rejected, vulnerable, beaten, abused, has now been shown to be the risen and exalted Lord. David was faithful as the shepherd king, owning his identity and finally being vindicated as God's chosen. Jesus was faithful even to death on a cross, revealing both God's own heart and the divine identity, the I, I am. The head of Goliath in the hand of David vindicates him as God's anointed. The keys of death and hell in the hands of the risen Jesus vindicate him as the suffering servant and now conquering king. Hallelujah. No wonder Jesus can say to John, do not be afraid. He has overcome he is great David's greater son, who is faithful, who owns his identity, who goes through with it, who is vindicated in his suffering by his resurrection, and who now stands for us and says to us, do not fear. Last week I told you that you need a king, and you do. We all need a king, and it's not us, and it's not Charles, I'm afraid. 
as lovely as he might be, we need a king who stands for us. We need a king who can cause us to fall on our faces with his glory and his beauty. We need a king who can humble us to our core by showing us the wounds in his hands and his feet. We need a king who can say, I am he. We need a king who holds the keys of death and Hades. And we have one. Jesus, our conquering king. There's plenty to be afraid of, isn't there? There's plenty to be scared of, plenty to be terrified about. How will we afford to live? How are we going to pay energy bills once the government stops helping? How long until the Ukrainian conflict spills over into a world war? What happens if there is a nuclear war? When will the next cataclysmic natural disaster occur? Where will it occur? How long before the climate crisis is truly out of control? How long if climate crisis, how long until climate crisis is not just I feel a little bit hot in the summer trying to get to sleep and becomes I'm fighting my neighbors over the last bottle of water in the supermarket? How long until all of this crazy stuff really starts to impinge on us? You know, maybe you just feel paralyzed by everything. Maybe a sense of existential angst is beginning to grip you. And as a late modern 21st century person, you're suddenly finding that you're finding that you're experiencing the same fears that your parents and their parents and their parents experience because life isn't quite as safe and as normal and as predictable as we all thought. Maybe you're paralyzed by all that. Maybe you're wondering, what's the point in trying to live a faithful Christian life today? What's the point of following Jesus? I thought that Jesus would just be a ticket to get all the good things that I wanted with some religion. And Jesus and me have exactly the same values, don't we? You need to know today that God not only knows your deepest fears, but he has a long and glorious history of entering right into the fears of his people, to fight for them, to conquer for them, and to deliver them of their fears. When David stood before Goliath on the battlefield, God sent him right there into the very crucible of the, the place where Israel's greatest fears were realized. This giant's come up! Oh, we don't know what to do. He's defying the armies of God. Oh, my goodness, life is over. And David speaks the truth of God and fights in the name of God and overcomes for the people of God. And so they rise up with fresh confidence and energy and charge after their enemies. People of God, look to the king. Jesus entered right into the mess and the fears and the insecurity and the existential angst of our world in order to deliver us from that, to give us a stronger, more robust future and hope. Who knows if there will be a world war? I don't. Who knows what will happen with climate change? Who knows whether Greta Thunberg will be right or Donald Trump will be right? The jury's out, isn't it? 
If you read The Guardian, it's Greta. If you read The Spectator, it might be Donald. Who knows? But Jesus is our king. Jesus is our conqueror. Jesus enters into the place of our deepest fears, and he says, look what's in my hand. I've been vindicated. I suffered, crucified in weakness, but now glorified, now super exalted to the right hand of God, now in authority over all things where all knees will bow and all tongues will confess that I am Lord. And you know, as a final thing, he shows us a pattern David and Jesus show us a pattern of smallness and rejection, of weakness, vulnerability maybe, and then vindication. And it's the pattern for us, friends, as we look to Jesus. It's not just a beam me up, Scotty, close your eyes, sing a little bit more loudly and pretend that there's nothing happening. No, 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 that doesn't work. And that's why a lot of Christians get disillusioned and give up, because that narrative, if we just sing a little bit more loudly and jump a little bit higher and preach a little bit more loudly and fill our diaries with more and more church stuff, that we'll be distracted and numbed and satiated by religion enough that the world, we won't notice that our lives have fallen into pieces or that the world is in a mess. But no, because the gospel does not allow you to do that. <laughs> Sorry, very teachery. You especially, Peter Roderick. The pattern of the gospel, and we see it foreshadowed in David, and we see it in Jesus. As we follow Jesus, we're called into a, a walk of weakness and vulnerability, and maybe being rejected by the world, but a future vindication with him. Vindication by the one who holds the keys, by the one who is exalted now by the one who once was rejected as king, but who one day every knee will say, he is king and lord. And so what do we do? We lean on him because he is robust and strong and secure. It doesn't solve all your problems. The problems can still prevail. The world can still look a mess. But Jesus says, don't fear. I hold the keys of death and hell. So don't fear. Trust him. Look to him. Seek him. And if you are a Christian, own your identity as a Christian, as defined by God through Christ and in Christ. Own that and stand firm. And as Paul beautifully led us, we will see him. And all tears will be wiped away. Even though we may walk through a dark, dangerous valley now, God will vindicate us as his people when he appears again. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your wonderful, beautiful, life-giving truth. Thank you that we have a great king over the house of God, Jesus our Messiah, our Savior. Lord, we can't understand how you should enter our world and suffer, be mistreated, rejected, beaten, spat on, and yet revealed in those very moments to be the I, I am. We thank you that right now, the keys of death and Hades in your hands vindicate you 
as the world's true King and Lord. Help us to lean on you, to lean on everlasting arms. Deliver us from our fears, O Lord. Rescue us from the angst that we feel. As the world goes nuts, O Lord, may we be a people who are a witness to you through lives of deep, rich peace, confidence. Even if we have to suffer for our confession, Lord, may we hold fast to you. Thank you for David, for the story of David. Thank you for this son of Jesse the Bethlehemite. God's fingerprints, God's ways, God's vindication. It's what we look for, Lord. Save us from human effort, pragmatism, religion, trying hard. Help us to lean on your provision, your king. For his sake, for our lasting joy and peace, we pray. Amen.